We've been in our series this month called Remarkable. And for me, no pun intended, it really has been remarkable. It's, it's really had me dive in the book of Martin, Mark and look at things in ways that I hadn't. And Pastor Reagan, he's led us off. Um, last week, he emphatically titled his message, Have Faith in God. The first week was a challenging question. It was, do you still not understand? And so this week, I believe Jesus presents us with another challenging question, which I hope to unpack and uncover so much so that, that this question here is probably the most important question you'll be asked today. I even want to get out and stand out on the limb that this is the most important question that you've ever been asked in your life. See, this question here, it's, it's split families, um, mothers and fathers from their children. It's split spouses. This question has fueled wars where countless have perished. This question here is the basis of billions in print and media revenue. This question here, it's so important that even more impactful than any of those things, this question is the basis of your very existential path. So I'm not going to bury the lead anymore. If you guys will stand with me, we'll honor God's word by reading it together. If you don't um, have your Bibles, it'll be on your screen. It'll come from Mark 8, 27 through 29. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? We'll uncover this first part first, but we'll get down to the question. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? New Hope, the title of my sermon today is a challenging question that Jesus asked us. Who do you say I am? We'll pray and then you can be seated. Well, dear Father God, we come to you humbly. We come to you as mere sinners, not deserving of your grace, but you died a sinner's death to bring us into perfect harmony with the Father. I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters under the sound of my voice, everybody that's online, God. I pray that you open our hearts. I pray that my words are not mine, but they're fully yours, that I decrease so that you can increase. We thank you as we ponder this question that you asked today, who do you say I am? And everybody said, amen. You may be seated, New Hope. So my analytical people, the first thing you may ask is, well, why this question here, right? Like, wouldn't it be, um, well, don't I believe? Like, wouldn't that be a, a more, more pertinent question? Or or what about, am I even saved, right? I think that question may be better suited, right? Why this question? Why is Jesus asking disciples this question here? And we'll unpack that, but I think we want to get some basis to why that is. I remember, um, and, and my, my wife might even not know this because she didn't know me at this time, just graduated college, fresh out of college. The world, the world is my oyster. I can conquer everything. The lease on my little tiny college apartment is up. It expired, so I'm packing everything up in my white pearl Toyota Camry with a, white, with a black bra on the front. I have everything I own in this car. Like my seats, my back seats are filled up to the brim. My trunk 
is, is completely packed at this point. And the, and the thing right there, the only thing in my passenger seat is the single most expensive paper known to mankind, my college diploma. And so I have no options, no networking, no job lined up. Young people don't do college like I did college. And I had nothing really to go, no place to, to really figure out what I was going to do. Um, I mean, I could have went back home, but nobody wants to do that. And all the parents in here, you're like, hey, man, I don't want to back home either. And, 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 um, and, and, and with that, I'm kind of deciding like what to do. And the words of Jesus really resonated with me. Some of you guys are familiar with the scriptures. He says, foxes have holes and, and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to rest his head. And I was like, man, I feel like that too. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of Val Stovall has no place to, to rest his head. Like I had nowhere to go. And so I'll fast, fast forward the, the story. Um, I had family in Atlanta. My cousin said, hey, you can stay here for a little bit, figure things out. And I'm thinking Atlanta, Georgia, right? That's the, that's the pinnacle, right? That's where things are moving and shaking. I can absolutely find a job in Atlanta. So I go up there and one of our family members is doing this network marketing. You guys are familiar with that? And it was insurance and investment. And I came out to the seminar and I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. I have nothing else to do. And essentially what you would do is you would do these consultations with this network of people that you know, which I didn't know anybody at the time. So that was very, very challenging for me. And they would call these kitchen tables and you would typically look for a husband and wife with kids and assets. That's kind of the sweet spot, right? They need the most protection. And so that's what you would look for. And I remember driving around 285, heading to my kitchen table consultations to sit down with the family. And at this point in my adult life, I saw the dynamics between men and women, husband and wives, a little bit differently. I never really looked at it like this, right? There are certain areas where husbands will step up in areas and certain areas where wives will. And as I went to the very beginning of the consultation, as I would sit down at this kitchen table, the first question would always resonate with the husband. Like, how much protection would you need if you passed away for your family? And the husband would shoot up and he would answer that question. I, would, I wanna make sure the house is paid off and the college and as we as providers and protectors, we always wanna make sure that our wives are taken care of, right? Amen, man? Any good man wants to do that. And typically the wife would be there and she would just kind of be nodding her head. Sometimes she would throw in some, some good questions to, to support that, but it would be the husband that would take along this question. And it wasn't until I got down probably halfway through my questionnaire with the wife kind of know this was her time. She knew this was really her question. I got to this question and it would take my hour consultation and it would usually push it out to an hour and a half, two hours. And the question I would ask is, can you describe your dream house? Oh man, they would perk up and they would get radiant all on their face. And I see some of you women are like, can we answer that question now? Like, can I answer that right now? And the wife would really kind of go on because she would think about that because a, life, a wife loves protection, right? And that was something that she would think about. Fast forward a little bit. Um, I'm actually five years removed from that. I actually have a real job. I'm here in Augusta, newly married. Beautiful wife, Cece, right here in the front row. And it's important in relationships to have conversation and communication. And one of the things I learned early on is you have to talk about things like finances. Now me, I have a finance background, so I love that. We would come and we would have what's called budget meetings, right? Anybody have budget meetings to talk about your budget? I would talk about how we're saving, where we're going, the financial plan. 
really the budget meeting was really for her to stop spending all the money? No, I'm just kidding. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. And, and she would have this look on her face where it would be important to her, but she would not be in it. She wouldn't be engaged. It's really everything in her face is screaming, boring. I didn't really want to be there. So one of the budget meetings, I thought I'd switch it up a little bit. I thought I would change course. Me being the good new husband I am, I have to learn how my wife is, love her love language. So I said, hey, honey, let's put away the budget for a second. I want to ask you a question. So I went back to my old network marketing days, and I said, can you describe your dream house? Man, New Hope, this grin came across her face. I mean, you would have thought she hit the relationship lottery. I mean, she was ready to go. She's texting her mom like, oh, my goodness, we're buying our dream house. I never said that. And she was just really excited about that. This girl pulled out two 20-page business plans, and she said, you want to start with the one by the beach or the mountains? <laughs> and she's telling me all these things about the wraparound porch and how it will be decorated, and even she's even appeasing me a little bit. Of course, you'll have your fully furnished man cave in the basement. And I'm like, I make $45,000 a year. It's not a real question I'm asking you. <laughs> this is a hypothetical and, you know, you got to over-spiritualize it a little bit. You know, this is, of course, this is going to be God's hospitality house, right? You know, we're going to have people in, and I'm like, this is really a hospitality shelter. You can fit all of Noah's Ark's animals in this place that you're describing here to me. And it's funny, none of the couples or even my wife, when they talked about this house, this structure, nobody ever mentioned the foundation, like, they never mentioned what it was actually built on, right? They never talked about the soil levels or the footers or anything like that. The foundation was never brought up. And any builder worth his salt, that's where he'll start at. If you're building a house, you're going to start with the foundation. Matter of fact, a bank won't even lend to you if you're trying to build on, on swampland, right? They know the foundation is not solid. So when this question is presented to us and the disciples, it has to be foundational, right? There are flawed foundations, and if there's a flaw in the foundation, the house will collapse. It doesn't matter how nice the structure is, if the foundation is not rooted in truth in this situation or solid, it will fall. Jesus puts it like this in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, it's like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus is talking about the principle of foundation. It's raining a lot right now. I hope nobody has a house that's built on sand that wouldn't be good in the weather. But Jesus here is talking about how important foundation is. Really, church, with this question, if you don't know the true Christ, then you can't believe in the true Savior. Paul puts it like this because it even resonates for us as Christians as well too. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 14, if Christ hasn't been risen, then our preaching and our faith is in vain. 
Essentially, us sitting here, coming here on a Sunday means nothing if he didn't die and rise again. But thankfully for us, we know through the inerrant word of God, through the spirit revealed in us, right? Through the evidence presented that our God is indeed risen, he is indeed alive, and he rose again, and we have life in him. But we have to understand. We have to understand that foundation. And so what causes these flawed foundation, these cracks in the foundation? See, a flaw in the foundation can be just very fatal to everything. Nobody, nobody comes out and says, okay, I want to build this house on a flawed foundation. Usually there's some type of crack, and then over the years you notice that the house collapses, right? Over the years, that's when the house falls down based on this flaw. It's interesting because everybody today has an opinion on Jesus. Anybody that's heard the name of Jesus has an opinion on Jesus and who he is. Now, some of them are very strong in their conviction, some of them not, but everybody has an opinion in today's world. You can go on social media and you see that people have an opinion on who he is. And these opinions are nothing more than what's called a worldview. And essentially, a worldview is a lens in through which we perceive everything. It's the lens of how we see our relationships. It's the lens of how we see our finances. It's the, it's the lens of what our, our, our destiny will look like. It's the lens of the afterlife. The worldview is the lens that we see everything. And there's many things of worldview when you look it up, but for the context of this message, there are gonna be two worldviews. There's one, that the Bible is true, that Jesus lived the perfect life, he was persecuted, he died on the cross, and he rose again. That's the first one. The second one, simply everything else. Anything that's not that. And so Jesus presents them with this question in the text verse. He asked this worldview question of the disciples. He's testing their temperature. He's seeing what they think. Mark 8, 27 through 28, the first part of our text verse, Jesus and his disciples went on to villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a Gentile region, and so they were moving in between Gentile regions and Jewish regions. Gentiles are basically pagan people that did not believe in a God of the Bible. And so that's where they are. They're alone at this point. It's just the 12 disciples. And on the way, he asked them this worldview question. He starts with this. He says, what, who do people say I am? And this is the answer that the disciples have given. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And so he's checking the temperature of what people are saying about him. But to really understand this in full context of the disciples being alone with Jesus, I want to bring us back. In the book of Mark, he gets right to the point of his gospels. The other ones talk about a lot of things that are streaming. He gets right to the point. And so we're here in chapter 8. There are 16 chapters, so we're right smack dab in the middle, right in the climax. And he's asking them this question. And they've seen a lot of things, and a lot of things are about to happen that they don't understand. And this is the pivotal point in Mark. And so I want to recap a little bit very, very briefly on what they've seen and what they've come to so far. And so right away, Mark starts off with his cousin, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He's preaching. 
He's putting, he's putting the way, he's giving the gospel of repentance to prepare the way for the one who is to come. Jesus does the best HR process ever where he gets 12 unlikely applicants to follow him. Doesn't even need to pass the MCAT because he's healing people. The blind are seeing, the deaf, the lame. Right in the middle of that, his cousin John, we talked about before, he's beheaded in Pharaoh's court. He's confronting Jesus at this time, religious leaders, as they're opposing him because he's getting too big. There are massive crowds that are following him at this point. So much so, you can say crowds and massive, but the Bible tries to give us some context around that. It states there's so many people that they had to leave one area because they were going to get crushed by the amount of people that were around them. So they can even make my claustrophobic people just kind of tense up. So many people, they're gonna get crushed. Another example puts it like this. There's so many people that they can't even raise their hand to eat. So there's massive crowds following them at this time. The teachings of Jesus is just going widespread. He's multiplying food to fish and bread dinners for thousands. He's calming storms with his very words. He's walking on waters. He's doing miracles. And he also enables his disciples to do the same thing, cast out demons, heals people. And then it brings us to here. They're traveling. They're wanderers. They're going to Jewish regions. They're going to Gentile regions. And they're right here in Caesarea Philippi. And he asked this worldview question, who do people say I am? It's interesting because when you look at that question in Mark in first century um, Judea, it's not too different than today. Like the worldview of people is not that different than how it was in the past. Here's a little graphic to kind of explain that. So if we look at worldviews through time, they kind of mirror the way people think today. So for instance, you can look at then and then don't believe you had your Pharisees, your Sadducees and scribes. They said, hey, no, he's a Galilean. He's a carpenter. We know his mother. We know his brother. We know who that is. He is not the son of God. You get atheists and agnostics that'll give us he's a historical figure at best, but you Christians can believe he's God if you want to. You have the good person of the prophet. That's one we hear a lot, right? And you had the crowds in a word study in the Bible that time. Crowds are essentially how it's described of multitudes of unidentified people. So you had different worldviews in that. But for the most part, the crowds came to see the healing. They came to see the miracles. He spoke with authority, unlike the Pharisees. So they looked at him and they said, yeah, he's a good person. He's a prophet. Hindus and Muslims believe that too. They love the teachings of Jesus. They just add them to their gods. If you talk to a Muslim person and they try to convert you, you would probably be taken back because they'd say, yeah, we revere the name of Jesus. We believe he came from a virgin birth and he ascended into heaven. I believe that. But then when you ask them about the deity of, of God, they'll say, oh, no, no, no. He's just merely a prophet of Allah. Then you have your altered Christ, right? They try to alter who Christ was. So for the Pharisees, as they started to evolve in one of the synagogues, they said, no, he's of Beelzebub. So we, we, we acknowledge he does the miracles. We, we see what he's done, but that comes from Satan. There's no way that's of God. They alter who the Christ was. And I love Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons 
pray for them when they come knock on the door. I love having interactions with them, but they have an altered version of Christ. Most times they will say, yeah, we're, we're Christians, but there's things on it that doesn't match up with the word of God that we believe in. So for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses, they would say he's Michael the Archangel. Or Mormons, right? Mormons would tell you that he's Lucifer brother and he's not a created being internally like John 1 says. And they both believe it's grace and your works that gets you and it's not the free gift of salvation. Church, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's grace. It's just him alone. It's a gift that only he can give. And then there's the creator Christ, kind of build your bear Christ how you want it. And you see this in the rich young ruler where he believes and he says, I believe in everything you teach. I've done all those since my boyhood. And Jesus says, great. Hey, we're going to Caesarea Philippi. Go sell everything. Let's go. But if you know the story, he's like, no, I can't. I can't give that up. I can't do that. And there's this dangerous teaching today, and I pray for my young people because this teaching is coming out on social media platforms, and it's this progressive Christian. And essentially, they say, yeah, we're Christians, and we believe the Bible, but you're just reading it wrong if you're looking at it from a conservative lens. You can still hold your sin in one hand and your Savior in the other. You can still do those things, and it's very, very dangerous teachings, and it's trying to infiltrate our young people today. And so you may ask me, church, because I believe that most of us in here, we believe who Jesus says he is. We believe he's the son of God. You've been coming to church all your life. So you may ask, well, why does this even matter? What does this even mean for me in my life? What do you have for me, Kel? I mean, that's good for those people. And I understand the dynamic of the world we're living in. But what about what's for me? And I want to give us three quick points on that of why I believe this is for us. When you see that, this is not something just to understand the world views of the world. This is specifically for us. First of all, is it because it matters to Jesus? It matters to him. In John 3, 16, it says, God so loved the world, right? So he so loved those world views, those people that reject him, those people that were far away from God. He loved those people. And you know what, church? For many of us, those people used to be us before we knew Jesus. He loved us. That those that believe, none will perish and have everlasting life. So that shows me all the people in the world that don't match up with our worldview, they will perish and they won't have everlasting life unless there's something where God reveals to them and uses us as his agents that he does to intervene. The next one is Jesus had compassion. He's a God of compassion. He has compassion on those individuals and those people. Matter of fact, many of us are familiar with when he fed the 4,000, but right before that, do we know the motive? Do we understand the motive of why he did it? Well, it tells us in Mark 2, it says, he had compassion on the people. They had been listening to his teaching for many days, and he knew that they were hungry. So he said, let's go get, let's feed them. Because if they walk away from here, they'll surely pass out because they're hungry. And it may be easy to look at that passage and say, well, you know, they're following him, right? At least, of course he's going to have compassion. Well, John 6, 2 said a lot of the people that followed him, they weren't necessarily there because he was the, he was the Savior or the Messiah. They said a lot of the people in the crowds at that time, they just wanted to see the miracles. They just wanted to have the healing. 
But even despite of all that, he looked past that and he says, it's not what you can give to me, it's what I'm giving to you. And he had compassion. So how much more, church, do we need to have compassion? How much more when we're in our workplaces and we see the person next to us and we just go and speed home or we get done with our project not to see, hey, who do you think this Jesus is? Or to build relationship to even get there or the people in our neighborhoods to say, man, I wanna tell you who this Jesus is to me. The last one he says in Mark 9, 37 through 38, it says, the laborers are few. It's interesting because if I look across the landscape of the United States or even the world any given weekend, there are millions of people sitting in pews just like you, worshiping, professing the name of Jesus Christ. And so when it says the laborers are few, I'm like, God, there's plenty laborers out here. What do you mean? And what it goes to show me is that a lot of us aren't employees. A lot of us aren't laboring. A lot of us aren't working. We're just here. And Jesus recognized this. He says there are few. There's not many of us. There's not many of us that's going to stand up. There's not many of us that are going to answer the bell. A lot of times those following me want to go and, and go away and kind of do their own will. He says, I need workers. I need laborers. And that's my prayer for myself and all of you today. Are we actually laborers? Because he says the harvest is plentiful. There are a lot of people, a lot of worldviews, a lot of opinions that don't know the true risen Savior. And if we believe what we say we believe, how much more is it for us to share it? How much more is it for us to talk to somebody about it or shout it with our lives? He calls us to do that. But then he gets a little bit more personal, right? He digs into our business, the next part of this question. He really wants to understand, okay, you tell me what the worldview is, you tell me what people believe, but I wanna get a little bit more personal. Have you guys ever had somebody in your life, maybe in a relationship, um, maybe somebody you're close with, a mother, a father, a spouse, or something like that, where they ask you this question, and it's a question about the relationship that you're in with them, and it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable? It makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable because it makes you accountable. It kind of holds you to the carpet and it's like, all right, you got to answer this question. I know that happened to me when my wife and I, we were dating and we were having fun. Like we were hanging out with our friend groups. We were going out. It's when you had all the butterflies and you could talk on the phone for all hours of the night. And she hits me with this question. She's like, so what are we doing? And I'm like, um, what do you mean? We're having a good time. We're on the phone. But that's not what she meant, and I knew exactly what she meant. And it wasn't, I won't say I had commitment issues. It was really defining the relationship because I thought we were fine. But she's like, no, what am I to you? And so there's this line in the sand, and you've got to figure out what side of the line you're going to be on. And Jesus does this in this next part. He does this to the disciples, and he does it to us when we become believers. He says this in Mark 8, 29. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? You see, when Jesus talks to us and he asks questions, he's not asking to get information. He's asking to reveal information to us. You see, there's something powerful when you actually have to say the words, when I actually had to answer her and say, man, 
We're more than just friends. You're my girlfriend. There's something that does internally in us. Even when it tells us when we have to say the salvation prayer, right? We have to believe in our heart and confess with our mouth. Our words are powerful. So what Jesus does when he asks this question, he's revealing something in us. He's making them say what they actually believe. He's holding them to the carpet, so to speak. And he does this in other occasions too. He does it at the woman and the well. If you guys are familiar with that story, he asks, can you give me a drink of water? And then she starts to go into this, um, to, to this religious between the Samaritans and the Jews and why she, he's asked for water and he's kind of revealing her heart of maybe what a crux is that's stopping her from knowing who she's talking to. And he says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water. He's revealing something. He's revealing something in her heart. He does this with the Pharisees as well too. John's baptism. This is his cousin he's talking about. Tell me where it's from. It's revealing so much in their heart at the time they can't even answer the question because they knew what the people would do. So when Jesus asks us a question, it's not for him. It's really for us. And so Peter ans he answers this question, and he answers it like this in Mark. He says, you are the Messiah. Peter knows who he is at this point. He says, you are the Messiah. Matthew says it like this. You are the Christ of the son of the living God. And that's how Peter is. He stands up and he's bold and he's a spokesperson for the, for the disciples at that point. And at this point, the disciples are at this pivotal period and they probably are starting to feel really, really, really good about themselves. Because Jesus continues this affirmation session after they answered the question. He tells them, hey, heaven revealed that to you. Like you couldn't have known that on your own. Heaven revealed that to you. And if you knew anything about rabbis and their followers, they wanted to be more like their rabbi to understand everything and be closer to God. So they were at this point where they're like, we know who you are and you're affirming us. Jesus continues on. He goes, this rock, I'll build my church. They're probably feeling full of themselves. They don't even know what it really means at that point. They think it means something else, but he's building his church on this. This is making me feel good. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail. So they're ready to run through a wall for this guy. They know who he is. They're affirming him and he's affirming them and they're feeling really, really good. He says, I'll give you the keys to, this, to the kingdom with this revelation. So they have to be super excited, right? I've been following this teacher. We have now arrived. He's affirming us. This is it. We're ready to go. We're ready to do this. Let's take over Rome. But, but what about the boat? What do you mean? What do you mean what about the boat? Well, a few chapters earlier, they're on the Sea of Galilee. And the boat where they're going across to the other side and the winds and the waves, they're storming in, they're crashing in, and they are afraid. They are scared. Jesus is in his stern, sleeping on his phone pillow, chilling. And they come to him and they said, teacher, don't you care that we're about to perish? We're about to die and you're asleep? Jesus wakes up off his comfortable nap speaks words and the storms calm right there, just like that. And he asks the question, he goes, why are you afraid? And then he follows it up, he says, do you have little faith? And then after that, they were actually more afraid, these fishermen used to be in on sea, 
were more afraid after that because the Bible says, then they became afraid again. And they questioned who he was. They said, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him? These disciples who just hit this crossroads and they just said later on, like, how can they go from this mountaintop to this valley to this mountaintop? Because if you guys know the rest of the story, they would abandon him. Peter would deny him. And they're on this roller coaster ride. And it's funny that men that walk closely with Jesus, they confirm miracles side by side with them. They were even enabled and empowered to do the same things. They cast out demons. They healed people. He sent them out in the book of Mark doing the same thing. Where did they forget that foundation of what they knew earlier, what they knew when they were selected? Where did that come from? How did they forget that? And the thing, the interesting part is when we talk about parallels, it happens to us too. We can become so on fire for God when we first give our lives or we go on a missions trip or we have a healing or a revelation, we're on this mountaintop, but then we can find ourselves as believers just in this valley. Like, man, who are you, Jesus? And so there's these forgotten foundations these things we knew from Sunday school, these things we knew when we quote, quote scripture, when we stand up and when we worship, we forget the foundation of who he says he is because we let the storm shake us. They rattle us. And our view of Jesus change, changes us in different situations. We start to live in fear in certain areas where we believe Jesus is the son of God, but in this area here, we just can't let him have that. Only a few people know about that area there. Maybe nobody even knows where it's just crippling fear, it's nervousness. And if you ask yourself, who is Jesus in that situation? You would probably say, just like the disciples, he doesn't care. It's not important to him. God, why are you letting me perish through this? Why are you letting me go through this? Where's my healing gonna come? Or doubting him when things are difficult and we don't see the trees beyond the forest. We don't know what he's doing next. We don't know about his purpose or his will for our life. And we, we doubt him. We know who he is, but we doubt him. And we ask the same question the disciples ask when things are difficult. Who is this? Like I know who he's supposed to be, but why is he not like this in this situation? Who is this? And I want to ask us a question because ours may look a little different. Sometimes it may be apathy. Sometimes it may look more like the world. Sometimes our prayer life starts to go off. But do our lives, do they mirror our answer in every situation? Like, can we stand up and say, like, our lives mirror our answer on the, on the question of who Jesus says, who, who Jesus is to us? And so as I get ready to wrap up, I get ready to close, I want to I say this because I think there's a few things that we need to, to look at because for most of us in the situations, in the fears, in asking this question or answering this question, who Jesus is, it's just, a, it's just a matter of inches. It's a matter of inches that's keeping us away and those matter of inches can seem like miles and miles when we're going through it. When we're going through that season or that trial and we're questioning Jesus, I think if you're a really committed follower, you've had seasons where you've questioned what he's doing, what it looks like. If we're truly honest, I know I have. And typically it's just a matter of inches. Or if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or if you're a believer and you have somebody you've been praying for that you want to know Jesus, 
For them, their matter of inches is a matter of life and death. And that matter of inches is taking it from here to here. It's taking it from what we know in our mind and what we say and all the biblical knowledge that we have and being able to live it with our heart, to believe it in our heart, to act it out with our heart, to be bold with our heart, not to just know it, but just believe it. And there's a quick litmus test that we can do when we're going through these problems that Jesus gives us. It comes from a popular verse in John 14, 6. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I think we can filter these things through that, right? When we're going through them, we can filter them through that. The first one is the way. Like, is Jesus the only way? Like, is there no other option for you? When you're looking at whatever it is he has for you, is he the only way? When it's your, your neighbor you want to talk to, do you believe he's the only way? Or do you believe they can just continue and go to their Georgia games on the weekend, you know, have their cookouts, but you never have to talk about this gospel message? Like, is he the only way? Do you truly, truly believe that? There was these bumper stickers they used to have a while back where it says, Jesus is my co-pilot. And it gives this idea that Jesus is in the um, passenger seat where you're telling them your three or five year plan and you're saying, take me here. It's not the case at all. Jesus drives the car and there's no other options at all. We sit in the passenger seat, really we're in the back seat and we let him guide and direct us. Paul says, I must decrease so he can increase. The other is the truth. There's this mantra out here that Truth is relative. You guys ever heard that term? Like you can have your truth, they can have their truth, she can have her truth. Truth is the relative. Especially when it comes to this, truth is truth. That's all there is. One plus one will always equal. Look at there, it's my math majors in the front. I know the kids know that. But truth cannot be manipulated. It is truth. And so when you're talking about this, you can't be swayed by your thoughts, your emotions, and your feelings. You can't be swayed. What happens a lot of times, we live a lie so much that we think that it's truth. And we're living in our own little matrix of, matrix of things and we think that it's truth. And it becomes reality to us. And the enemy is set out ever since the beginning, ever since the Garden of Eden, Eden to manipulate truth. And church, he's still doing that today. The stuff that you believe, you can start to get pulled back. Even that progressive Christian slide, they think that it's comfortable that you can have your sin in one hand and your savior in the other. Jesus is a jealous God. He wants all of you or none at all. No truth, church. No truth. The Bible says if you know truth, it will set you free. And the last one is the life. Man. Isn't it phenomenal to know that we have a Savior who was on the right hand of the Father? He came down and humbled himself in human form, right? He lived a sinless life for sinners like you and me. He died on the cross. He gave his life so that we can have everlasting life. That's the God we serve. God, he gave his life so that we can have ours. Church, our life, it's not our own. It doesn't belong to us. He paid the price. Mark 8.35 says, whoever finds their life will lose it. So if you find your life in the things of this world, your job, your career, your business, your relationships, your kids, your assets, your home, your cars, if you find your life in those things, 
They will be gone. They don't last. They won't be here. But he says, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So basically, if you give up all those things for him, you will find out what true life actually is. And I'm here to tell you, church, that he is so worthy. He is so worth it. He's worth the discipline. He's worth the sacrifice. He's worth the persecution for following him. It will not be easy, but he is worth it. Anything you give up, far, it far exceeds and, it, and, and he, it gains what you get for him, from him, the life that you live from him. I wanna end today by asking us a challenging question that he, Jesus asked us. Who do you say I am? And I want us to really take it from here to here when we're, when, we're at, when we're answering that question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in our lives? Who is Jesus in our relationships? Who is Jesus in our careers? Who do we actually say he is? And will it match what our heart says? I was reminded of a story when I was preparing for this message. And it's a story I'd heard before, but I was just recently reminded. I was like, man, this fits perfectly because it was an integral part in my life, my adolescence. I was in high school at the time. And for many of you, this will be a history lesson because some of you guys weren't even born. It shows how old I'm getting. For some of you guys, you'll know the exact place you were when you heard this story. The story I'm about to tell is pretty intense. April 20th, 1999, there was a mass shooting at a high school in Colorado, Columbine. Two students plot, planned, and executed the destruction of their classmates and teachers. They invoked chaos in that place that day. Never should a student have to worry about getting up and if they're ever gonna come home. Never should a parent have to worry about, is my child gonna come back safely? And that wasn't the first of its kind and we know with hindsight that that wasn't the last of its kind. There was news outlets and media outlets that just clenched your heart as students ran out of the building you had testimonies of kids crying and they were sobbing. There were heroic stories because 15 people lost their lives and 24 were injured. And there were heroic stories that came out of that that we can look back on. There was one in particular of a girl named Rachel Scott and she was a professing Christian. Everybody in the school knew of her to be a Christ follower. They knew she loved Jesus. I wish they could say that about me when I was in high school, but they knew that. And even the shooters knew that too. One of the eyewitness accounts said that one of the shooters had Rachel by her hair. And he says, do you believe in your God now? And Rachel looked at him and boldly said, I do. Shot her. Bullet goes through her chest, through her backpack, and she dies. And at that moment when I heard that story, I had grown up in church, Christianity was important to me, but I was probably no more than a mere comfortable Christian, sitting in my pews, waiting for somebody else to do it. And when I saw there were actually Christians, especially young people that were willing to live what they believed, they were bold in their faith, it really challenged me. It put me on this collision course to say, Am I owning my faith? Is it my own? Who is Jesus to me? Church, I would like for you to stand with me as we get ready to close. 
And as we stand, there's this question, this question that we'll all have to face Jesus with face to face one day. He'll ask us, who do you say I am? In every situation, in every encounter we have in life, he'll ask us that. And I wonder what our answer will be. Will we be able to move the inches on the journey from here to here? Will we be able to proclaim it just like Rachel Scott boldly proclaimed it in her life? Like, wouldn't that be great if we had a church all across the world, all the Christians in the world that boldly profess who Jesus is? Like if every Christian across the world could take one person in their life that, that they know, you know, it says the harvest is plentiful, they know does, they don't know doesn't believe, and they said, hey, this is who Jesus is to me. I wonder how impactful that would be. What if just every Christian in the United States could get on their social media platforms and instead of showing what they had for dinner or their, or their, vac or their, their vacation or where they went, right, those things are fine, but we all just did collectively at once and we professed the name of Jesus. I wonder what type of revival would break out in our country today, church. Man, that would be beautiful. I wonder if just in Grovetown, Georgia, or just right here in the sanctuary, it's just every Christian as we look to Easter where people's hearts are ready, they want you to invite them to church. If we can take this invitation and every one of us just says, come to church with me. I wonder how that would look. Or maybe if it's just an individual decision where each one of us analyzes ourselves and we say, Jesus, search those places in my heart. Who are you truly to me in every situation? And I wanna know you more. What a glorious day that could be. I wonder how our world would change. I wonder how lives would change. I wonder how others would change. I wonder the impact that it would make. Because don't you believe our God is powerful enough to do that? Don't you believe it's the God that moves mountains, church? He's the God that went and he goes and he, he leaves the 99 just for the one. And he asked to partner with you. If you're believers today, if you bow your head as we close, man, Jesus, you asked this question in Mark, and we know the Bible's not about us, but you give us your word to give us insights. You write it for us, and in this question, you say, who do you say I am, as you challenge the disciples with? And that same question you're asking us today, people of New Hope, who do you say I am? Do you say I'm your savior in every situation? Do you say I'm your savior in every relationship? Do you, do you say I'm your savior in every doubt? Who do you say I am? God, we pray right now that we can get more of you. We pray right now that you can fill us up. We believe most of us, but help our unbelief, Jesus. Help us to be like Rachel Scott and boldly profess the name of Jesus in any and every situation because you are the risen savior. You are good, you are glorious, and we love you and we thank you. So I pray for every man and woman under the sound of my voice as they leave here today, as the wind and waves and storms hit them, that they can know who you are. We thank you and we praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus.